It's been a great uh, honor to have you with us. I know a lot of you are guests, and uh, thank you for coming. And I am going to be continuing the story of Joseph this Sunday. In fact, uh, it's Father's Day, and this weekend I'll be looking at Joseph's reunion with his own father and with some of the powerful lessons his father gave Joseph as an old man. I think you'll be blessed, so I hope you'll come back. And uh, like David said, uh, we just want to share the love of God with you wherever you're at. If you have any questions, come see us. Come talk to Dave. Email. Uh, this small group that we're doing next week on Tuesday nights, really it's more of a gathering. It's for, we're going to look at some videos together and talk about some of the most important questions people deal with. And the very first week, Joseph would have loved. How do I handle stress? What do I do with all this stuff in my life that just seems to be crashing? And we're going to get together and talk about that. So come, come join us, I think. I think you'll be blessed. I hope you have. See, the thing about Joseph that I personally relate to is, as amazing as he is, his story seems reachable to me. And what I mean by that is, do you notice in the story of Joseph, outside of the dreams, there are no miracles. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't heal anybody. God doesn't do any miracles for him. Um, God has two hands. There's his powerful hand of the supernatural where he does something visible and powerful. We call it miracles. And God uses that hand all the time. God has another hand. It's that quiet, invisible hand of the providential where he just works things out behind the scenes in ways that you don't know until you look back. That's how he worked in Joseph's life. That's how he works in my life. All the time. For example, just two nights ago after our teaching, a sweet woman came up to me and uh, she's a refugee from another country where Christianity is very persecuted. And she's had a tough journey. And she was telling me how uh, she was struggling that particular day with, with feeling kind of alone. And she pulls into a QT and she sees me get out of my car at the QT. And she said, just seeing you. You don't know who I was, but just seeing you gave me confidence that God's people are around me and I'm not by myself. Now, folks, that's providence. That's providence because I didn't think to myself, I feel called to pull into this QT to be an example to somebody. I wanted a Diet Coke. That's the only reason I can remember that I went to that QT. I need to tell you, I have an addiction to Diet Coke. I used to be a Dr. Pepper man, national drink of Texas, but you know, you get older and you start worrying about the calories, and it took me six months, and I taught myself to like Diet Coke. The problem is, I got to thinking, no calories, I can have all I want, and I did. I was drinking Diet Coke all day long. So, two or three years ago, I decided, okay, I am going to cut back on Diet Coke, because I had seen this study that said there might be a link between diet drinks and short-term memory loss. And then for years, there's been suspicions that artificial sweeteners are linked to some kinds of cancers. And there's no way all that carbonation and caffeine in my body was good for me. And there was a study I read that said there might be a link between diet soda and short-term memory loss. And so I decided <laughs> that I was going to drink 
less Diet Coke. I really intended. But my intentions crashed after about two weeks. I still drink too much. Because I struggle to give up things I want to hold on to. And sometimes I struggle to hold on to things when I'm tempted to give up. And that's one reason I love Joseph and relate to Joseph. Because here's a guy that never gave up on God's dreams for his life. And the reason he never gave up is because he knew what to give up. And that's what I want to unpack tonight. Let me begin with this. Have you noticed a lot of people seem to be fluent in the language of whining? I'm amazed with all of the hardship and the disappointment and the unfairness in Joseph's life. You don't hear him whining. See, our culture worships at the idol of entitlement. And the motto of our culture is, it's all about me. We may not say that, but we might as well because of the way we live. And by the way, this all about me religion was genetically passed down to you and me All the way from Adam and Eve. Because the basic sin in the garden, and it's the basic sin of all sins, is simply this. That we think we ought to be able to park in God's spot. That's basically what happened in the Garden of Eden. Why don't you park there? That's God's spot. Well, why can't you have God's spot? That's a paraphrase of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But that's basically what happened. And it's basically what's been happening ever since. That that temptation has been passed down. And we think it should be about me. I read a story in Reader's Digest. This guy says, I put myself through college delivering pizza. So one night I go to this house to take a pizza. And I ring the doorbell. And a seven-year-old boy comes to the door. He's got a check for the amount of the pizza in one hand. And in the other hand, he has two $1 bills, which I assume was my tip. So he hands me the check, grabs the pizza, puts the $2 in his pocket. And I say to him, do you think your parents meant that to be the tip? He said, yeah, not bad just for walking from the couch to the door, huh? (laughs) We think it's about us. Now, here is why we have a world full of people that, as Rodney King said years ago, just can't get along. It's why there's so much violence, there's so much frustration, there's so much strife in the world. Because you got six billion people all wanting to park in the same spot. You got six billion people living on the motto, it's about me. Now, just think about that. You're going to get up tomorrow. You're going to go to work. You're going to get on these crowded highways. You're going to go to the mall. And every single person you see is basically thinking, it needs to be about me today. Can you see a potential for conflict? Let me let you in on a secret. 
Nobody else got or will ever get the memo that tomorrow it's all about you. And this brings us to Joseph. Because his ability to stay right with God and other people when so many things went wrong was simply this. That the key to holding on is letting go. He didn't cling to the lie that he was in charge and that life should always go the way he wanted. He didn't live always annoyed and frustrated and bitter because he let go of the idea that it was supposed to revolve around him. Just read your Bible. It takes five words for the Bible to make clear who's in charge. In the beginning, God created. It's not about you. You're not the star of this story. So, we leave Joseph languishing in an Egyptian prison with nothing but his faith and his dreams to hold on to. And then we learn that Joseph is not the only dreamer in the story. Pharaoh has dreams. He has dreams of these uh, fat cows that come out of the Nile. Followed by skinny cows that eat the fat cows. He has dreams of these healthy grains of wheat that are swallowed and eaten by sickly shafts of wheat. It says in chapter 41 verse 8, In the morning his mind was troubled. And so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Now, you've got to understand, when Pharaoh's not happy, nobody's happy. And Pharaoh's not happy. And there is a very subtle but powerful theological undercurrent to this text we're going to study tonight. Because Pharaoh has people in charge of protecting what communication he receives. Pharaoh doesn't get troubling news unless he wants to. And he is bothered because he has received a communication from the real king. And his wise men can't tell him what it means. This is supposed to be what he pays them to do, but they have no clue. Because God makes foolish the wisdom of the world. But the battle of the gods was just beginning. So in chapter 41, verse 9... Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Now, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. And each of us had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. And I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. And so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now, you put yourself in Joseph's position. 
this is your chance. Wouldn't you be thinking about yourself? Wouldn't you be thinking, how can I leverage this opportunity for my own best interest? But Joseph isn't about making much of Joseph. His life is about making much of God. So watch what he does. Verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one the same dream. The seven lean ugly cows that came afterward are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten. And the famine will ravage the land. Let me stop just a second. You're talking about an agrarian society. Famine is the ultimate curse word. But Egypt doesn't worry about famine. Egypt's got the Nile. The Nile is watered by the equatorial rainforests back up in Central Africa. The Nile always flows. Egypt doesn't do famine. But Joseph says, it's coming. The abundance of the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now, you've got to appreciate the theological undercurrents in this dialogue to appreciate Joseph's courage. Because Pharaoh's business card didn't just say king. It said God. You worshipped Pharaoh. Now here is a Hebrew inmate that they had to give a bath to because he stunk so bad and find some clean clothes to put on who is standing before the guy who has a business card that says God and says to him, my God is the ruler of the whole earth and that includes Egypt. My God has ordained a future for Egypt. And you are helpless to change it. That took some courage. When King Louis XIV of France was in power, he called himself the Great. He had the most uh, ornate court in Europe. He gave orders for his own funeral. His body was put in a gold coffin. The cathedral was dimly lit with one special candle on his coffin. Thousands waited in hushed silence. Bishop Massillon began to speak. He reached down. He grabbed the candle. He blew it out. He said, only God is great. Now that's one thing to do when the king is dead. 
It's something else when the king is standing right in front of you. And you just left his dungeon. And this Hebrew prisoner looks right at Pharaoh and says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has just decided the next 14 years of the history of your reign. You better deal with it. In fact, he doesn't stop there, but he tells Pharaoh what he ought to do. He said, now if I was in your shoes, I'd find a good man. And I'd go around Egypt, and for these seven overflowing years, I would collect the excess. Because it's going to get bad when it gets here. I'd take those seven years, and I'd store that abundance so that when the lean years come, uh, Egypt survives. And he provided Pharaoh with a solution. But he didn't offer himself as the answer. Now, that's the, that's the first thing I want you to notice. Joseph gave up the chance to elevate himself. If you look back through his speech, he never once talks about himself. He constantly talks about God. Look at the verbs. God will give. God has revealed. God has shown. God has decided. And God will do it. God is the star of this script, and Joseph isn't trying to write himself into the story. He gave it up so that Pharaoh would give it up to God. He didn't try to park in God's spot. It's the spirit that Peter talks about in his little letter in the fifth chapter. God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. God lifts up those who leverage opportunities to lift Him up. And that's what happens. Verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? By the way, isn't that what you want someone to say about you? Is it worth all Joseph went through if that's what it took to bear that mark? Are you willing to go through one trial after another if it puts on you the mark of the Spirit of God? He says, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and as wise as you. You'll be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. And only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now think about this. Joseph woke up in the morning. He was a prisoner. He stunk. He had a gross beard and ratty clothes. He goes to bed at night. He's the second most powerful person in Egypt. What a difference a day makes. And it shows more about what kind of man we're talking about. Because here's my experience. It's hard on a person's spiritual equilibrium to go from a prison to a mansion. In 30-something years of preaching, I'm going to make a bold statement here. Adversity's hard on people. 
but prosperity is harder. For the most part, when I ask people, what was the turning point in your life where you took your work with God to a greater level, they will talk about a trial. I've seen prosperity ruin the spiritual health of so many people. So here's Joseph. He gets a new job. He gets totally new wardrobe, gets jewelry, gets a new set of wheels. He gets the latest in chariots. He gets the family. Pharaoh gives him a wife, an Egyptian priestess, to be his wife. Now, all this is pretty intoxicating if you're just 30 years old, which is how old he was when all this happened. But Egypt could honor the boy from Canaan. Egypt couldn't get Canaan out of the boy. Look what happens, verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, It's because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, you say, I didn't see a significance there. Did you notice? Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name. He gave Joseph... An Egyptian wife, she had an Egyptian name. Joseph gave his sons Hebrew names. And every time he said the names of his boys, he gave witness to the sovereignty of the God of his great-grandfather, Abraham. He says, that boy, the youngest one. I'm going to call him God's made me fruitful. Every time I say his name, I just want to remember it's not about me. God did this for me. This oldest one, I'm going to call him God's made me forget. Because there's been some real junk in my life and I don't carry it around. I'm not a bitter man because God's made me forget. And God did. God made him fruitful. God helped him be forgetful. But here's the thing. God didn't want him to be burdened by the pain of the past. But God didn't want him to forfeit the dream. Now what was the dream? What was the dream that started this whole story? Your family is going to bow down to you. Has that happened? Question. Why did Joseph never go back to Canaan? We're going to find out for nine years. He's in power in Egypt. He can do whatever he wants. Why didn't he get that cool chariot and just hook him on up to Canaan one weekend? Well, Joseph wanted to forget. He thought the best way to deal with the pain in his past is just not deal with it. That's not how God wants us to deal with the past. Especially when we're talking about relationships. It's like the couple I heard, they had this big argument one weekend and they started giving each other the silent treatment. It went on all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Neither one was going to break. They were both too proud to be the first to speak. So, he's got a big business trip Monday morning. He goes to bed first. He puts on her pillow a note. Please wake me up at 5 a.m. Next morning, he wakes up at 9 a.m. He has missed his flight. He's furious. He's about to go chew out his wife. He sees a slip of paper on the nightstand. It's 5 a.m. Wake up. (laughs) Now, how many of you are dealing with relational conflict that way? God cares about reconciliation. 
And so, if you won't go to Canaan, God will bring Canaan to Egypt. And that's what happened. The famine got severe. After a couple of years, Jacob and his boys ran out of food. They heard there was food down in Egypt. So Jacob sends the boys, and there's a lot of the story that we'll cover in a later lesson if you'll come back. But at the end of the day, here's all these boys bowing down to the vice president of Egypt. The dreams come true. They don't know who he is. Now, everybody who's been to the movies knows what should happen next. Joseph is supposed to bow up and say, my dream is about to be your nightmare. I am about to give to you what you deserve for your unkindness, right? But instead of deciding to pay it back, Joseph gave it up. Chapter 45. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one but Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it's not you who sent me here, but God. And you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. It really is I am speaking to you. And so tell my father of all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen. And bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. Every family needs a courier of grace. This was Joseph's moment to pay back. But instead, he gave up the need to vindicate himself. Once again, instead of putting the focus on himself, he put the focus on God. Did you notice his speech two different times? God sent me. Two different times. God made me. I choose not to focus on what you did to me. But on what God is doing through me. Because you can't get better as long as you keep justifying your right to be bitter. You can't move forward as long as you hold on your right to pay back. But it's liberating. When you give up the need to elevate yourself. When you give up the need to vindicate yourself. When you stop trying to park in God's spot. 
Paul would later say this in Romans 12. Don't mistreat someone who's mistreated you. But do your best to live at peace with everyone. Don't try to get even. Let God take revenge. Don't let evil defeat you. But defeat evil with good. Now this is the key to Joseph. How did he hold on? He knew how to give up. He let God be the center of things. He didn't try to promote himself. He didn't try to vindicate himself. God's job is to fix it. My job is to forgive. In the uh, 1800s in London, the two most famous preachers were Joseph Parker, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon had a very uh, big orphanage he cared a lot about that he had started. And one Sunday in his sermon, Parker preaches about the poor shape of the orphans that go to live in that orphanage. Well, it got back to Spurgeon that he had preached about the poor shape of the orphans in the orphanage. So the next Sunday, Spurgeon gets up and just blasts Parker. And all of Spurgeon's sermons were front page news in the paper. So all London's talking about how Spurgeon just let into Parker. So the next Sunday, all the papers go to Parker's church to hear how he's going to respond. And he did respond. He stood up and said, I know this is the Sunday they often have a special collection for the uh, Spurgeon's orphanage, but he's gone today, so let's just have one at our church. They had to pass the plate three times. They took up so much money. The next day, Spurgeon came to his office and said, Parker... You have practiced grace on me. You didn't give me what I deserved. You gave me what I needed. This is how we live. When we let God be the sinner. And we stop trying to write the story. A real personal illustration. Um, A few years ago, our church made a major change in our worship style. We included instrumental worship in part of our worship style. And... I caught a ton of flack, not from our church, but from people all over the country that didn't like the change. It was ugly. And I had to make a decision, how am I going to respond to this? Because I wanted to vindicate myself. I got some emails that were so God-dishonoring, I felt like I ought to do something. But I made a decision. I'm going to let God fix this. I'm going to pray for every person that writes me. And I'm going to forgive every single person. Now, here's what's happened seven years later. I've lost count of all the emails I've gotten from people saying, would you please forgive me for what I did? Recently, a young man came up to me and said, you know, when you did that, a guy wrote a book about your church and it was ugly, and I passed out books. He says, now I'm pastor of a church in Michigan with instruments. He said, would you forgive me? Of course I will. Here's the cool thing. God is now using me to mentor young preachers that seven years ago attacked me. Because it's not about me. I'm not the star of the story. This is God's story. See, uh, grace is a much better place to live. Grace can help you let go of things you're holding on to, like 
resentment. And grace can keep you from giving up things you need to hold on to, like relationships. The key to holding on is letting go. And the key to letting go is letting God. Elevation is God's job. Vindication is God's business. And God is good at His job. And so Joseph would later say again to his brothers in chapter 50, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But God. So lift up God. Lift up God, Peter says, He will lift you up in the right time. He didn't say in no time. Lift up God. He will lift you up in the right time. Trust God by entrusting God with the people that hurt you. Change parking spots. And give it up to God. Because if He runs the universe, nothing that's ever happened to you is irredeemable. Uh, Matt Redman is one of my favorite worship song writers. He and his wife are from England. They were planning to go after a vacation in the United States back to England, but their flight got canceled because on 9-11, planes flew into the Twin Towers and all the flights got canceled. And so while he's here reflecting on that terrible tragedy at 9-11, he realized we don't have a lot of songs that help us deal with lament. And he wrote one. He reflected on Job. And he said, blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me and the world's everything it's supposed to be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When the road's marked with suffering. There's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. You give, you take away. It's not about me. It's about you. Because if you want to live up, Joseph, you've got to give up this crazy notion that you're going to wake up in the morning and you're in control. The only thing you control tomorrow is who you're going to worship. And if you're like Joseph, you'll give it up to God. Thank you for coming these three nights. I hope to see you again this weekend. God's blessing.